Chapter Seven of the Golden Dream. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Dream by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter Seven: The Fate of the Roving Bess, Gambling Scenes, Mister Sinton Makes a New Friend, Larry O'Neill Makes Money in Strange Ways, A Murder and a beggar's death. Ned becomes a poor man's heir. The remnant of the cargo of the roving Bess proved to be worth comparatively little, less even than had been anticipated. After a careful inspection, Mr. Thompson offered to purchase it in the slump for one thousand dollars, about two hundred pounds sterling. This was a heavy blow to poor Captain Bunting, who had invested his all, the savings of many years in the present unfortunate venture. However, his was not a nature to brood over misfortunes that could not be avoided, so he accepted the sum with the best grace he might, and busied himself during the next few days in assisting the merchant to remove the bales. During this period he did not converse much with anyone, but meditated seriously on the steps he ought to take. From all that he heard it seemed impossible to procure hands to man the ship at that time, so he began to entertain serious thoughts of taking his chance at the diggings after all. He was by nature averse to this, however, and had nearly made up his mind to try to beat up recruits for the ship, when an event occurred that settled the matter for him, rather unexpectedly. This event was the bursting out of a hurricane or brief but violent squall, which, before assistance could be procured, dragged the roving Bess from her moorings and stranded her upon the beach just below the town. Here was an end to seafaring prospects. The whole of his limited capital would not have paid for a tenth part of the labor necessary to refloat the ship. So he resolved to leave her on the beach and go to the diggings. Mr. Thompson advised him to sell the hole as it would fetch a good price for the sake of the timber, which at that time was much wanted in the town, but the captain had still a lurking hope that he might get his old ship afloat at some future period, and would not hear of it. What, said he, sell the roving Bess, which stands A-1 at Lloyd's, to be broken up to build gold-diggers' houses? I trow not. No, no, let her lie where she is in peace. On the day after the squall, as Ned and the captain were standing on the shore regarding their late floating and now grounded home, in sad silence, a long-legged, lantern-jawed man in dirty canvas trousers, long boots, a rough coat, and broad straw hat, with an enormous cigar in his mouth and both hands in his trousers' pockets, walked up and accosted them. It did not require a second glance to know that he was a Yankee. "'Guess that is pretty well fixed up, stranger,' he said, addressing the captain and pointing with his nose to the stranded vessel. "'It is,' answered the captain shortly. "'Fit for nothing but firewood, I calculate.' To this the captain made no reply. "'I say, stranger,' continued the Yankee, "'I wouldn't mind to give ye one thousand dollars for her. Slick off.' "'I don't wish to sell her,' replied the captain.' say fifteen hundred replied the man i tell you i won't sell her no now that is curious will he loan her then here ned whispered a few words to the captain who nodded his head and turning to the yankee said how much will you give well i reckon she's too far out to drive a screamin trade but i don't mind saying one hundred dollars a month 
After some consultation with Ned and a little more talk with the Yankee, Captain Bunting agreed to this proposal, only stipulating that the bargain should hold good for a year, that the hole should not be cut or damaged in any way, and that the rent should be paid in advance into the hands of Mr. Thompson, as he himself was about to proceed to the gold fields. Having sealed and settled this piece of business at a neighboring tavern, where the Yankee, Major Whitlaw, ordered a brandy smash for himself and two gin slings for his companions, which they civilly declined to his intense amazement, the contracting parties separated. "'That's rather a sudden transfer of our good ship,' said Ned, laughing, as they walked toward the plaza, or principal square of the town, where some of the chief hotels and gambling-houses were situated. "'I feel half sorry for having done it,' replied the captain. "'However, it can't be helped now, so I'll away to our friend Thompson's office and tell him about it. "'Then I shall wander about here until you return.' it will be dinner-time at the hotels two hours hence suppose we meet at the parker house and talk over our future plans while we discuss a chop to this the captain agreed and then hurried off to his friend's office while ned entered the hotel a large portion of this building was rented by gamblers who paid the enormous sum of sixty thousand dollars a year for it and carried on their villainous and degrading occupation in it night and day the chief games played were monte and faro but no interest attached to the games as such. The winning or losing of money was that which lent fascination to the play. Ned had intended to stroll through the hotel and observe the various visitors who thronged the bar, but the crash of a brass band in the gambling saloons awakened his curiosity and induced him to enter. The scene that met his eyes was perhaps the strangest and the saddest he had ever looked upon, the large saloon was crowded with representatives of almost every civilized nation under the sun. English, Scotch, Irish, Yankees, French, Russians, Turks, Chinese, Mexicans, Indians, Malays, Jews, and Negroes, all were there in their national costumes and all were, more or less, under the fascinating influence of the reigning vice of California and especially of San Francisco. The jargon of excited voices can neither be conceived nor described. Crowds surrounded the monte tables on which glittering piles of gold and silver coin were passing from hand to hand according to varying fortune. The characteristics, and we may add the worst passions of the various nations, were ever and anon brought strongly out. The German and Spaniard laid down their money and lost or won without a symptom of emotion. The Turk stroked his beard as if with the view of keeping himself cool. The Russian looked stolid and indifferent. The Frenchman started, frowned, swore, and occasionally clutched his concealed pistol or bowie-knife, while the Yankee stamped and swore. But indeed the men of all nations cursed and swore in that terrible place. Those who dwelt in the city staked gold and silver coin, while the men just returned from the mines staked gold dust and nuggets. These last were conspicuous from their rough clothing, rugged, bronzed, and weather-worn countenances. Many of them played most recklessly. Several successful diggers staked immense sums and either doubled or lost, in two or three throws, the hard earnings of many months of toil, and left the rooms penniless. At one end of the saloon there was a counter with a plentiful supply of stimulants to feed the excitement of the wretched gamblers, and the waiter here was kept in constant employment. Ned had never been within the unhallowed precincts of a gambling house before and it was with a feeling of almost superstitious dread that he approached the table and looked on. A tall, burly, bearded miner stepped forward at the moment and placed a huge purse of gold dust on the table. 
"'Now, then,' he cried with a reckless air, "'here goes, neck or nothing.' "'Nothing,' he muttered with a fearful oath as the President raked the purse into his coffers. The man rose and strode sullenly from the room, his fingers twitching nervously about the hilt of his bowie-knife, an action which the President observed, but heeded not, being prepared with a concealed revolver for whatever might occur. Immediately another victim stepped forward, staked five hundred dollars, and won. He staked again a thousand dollars, and won. Then he rose, apparently resolved to tempt fickle fortune no more, and left the saloon. As he retired, his place was filled by a young man who laid down the small sum of two dollars. Fortune favored this man for a long time, and his pile of dollars gradually increased until he became overconfident and staked fully half of his gains and lost. Ned's attention was drawn particularly to this player, whom he thought he had seen before. On looking more fixedly at him, he recognized the young porter who had carried up the box to the merchant's house. His next stake was again made recklessly. He laid down all he possessed and lost. Then he rose suddenly and, drawing a pistol from his breast, rushed towards the door. None of the players who crowded the saloon paid him more than momentary attention. It mattered not to them whether he meditated suicide or murder. They made way for him to pass and then, closing in, were deep again in the all-absorbing game. But our hero was not thus callous. A strong feeling of sympathy filled his breast, prompting him to spring through the doorway and catch the youth by the shoulder just as he gained the street. He turned round instantly and presented the revolver at Ned's breast, but the latter caught his right arm in his powerful grasp and held it in the air. "'Be calm, my poor fellow,' he said. "'I mean you no harm. I only wish to have a word of conversation with you. You are an Englishman, I perceive.' The young man's head fell on his breast and he groaned aloud. "'Come, come,' said Ned, releasing his arm. "'Don't give way like that.' "'I'm lost,' said the youth bitterly. "'I have struggled against this passion for gaming, "'but it has overcome me again and again. "'It is vain to fight against it any longer.' "'Not a bit of it, man,' said Ned in a cheering tone, "'as he drew the arm of the young man within his own "'and led him slowly along the street. "'You are excited just now by your disappointments.' Let us walk together a while, for I have something to say to you. I am quite a stranger here, and it's a comfort to have a countryman to talk with. The kind words and earnest, hearty manner of our hero had the effect of soothing the agitated feelings of his new friend, and of winning his confidence. In the course of half an hour, he drew from him a brief account of his past history. His name, he said, was Collins. He was the son of a clergyman, and had received a good education. Five years before the period of which we now write, he had left his home in England and gone to sea, being at that time sixteen years of age. For three years he served before the mast in a South Sea whale-ship, and then returned home to find his father and mother dead. Having no near relations alive and not a sixpence in the world, he turned once more towards the sea, with a heavy heart and an empty pocket obtained a situation as second mate in a trading vessel which was about to proceed to the Sandwich Islands. Encountering a heavy gale on the western coast of South America, his vessel was so much disabled as to be compelled to put into the harbor of San Francisco for repairs. Here the first violent attack of the gold fever had set in. The rush of immigrants was so great that goods of all kinds were selling at fabulous prices, and the few bales that happened to be on board the ship were disposed of for twenty times their value. 
The captain was in ecstasies, and purposed sailing immediately to the nearest civilized port for a cargo of miscellaneous goods. But the same fate befell him which afterwards befell Captain Bunting and many hundreds of others. The crew deserted to the mines. Thereupon the captain and young Collins also betook themselves to the gold fields, leaving the ship to swing idly at her anchor. Like most of the first arrivals at the mines, Collins was very successful and would soon, in digger's parlance, have made his pile, i.e. his fortune, had not scurvy attacked and almost killed him, compelling him to return to San Francisco in search of fresh vegetables and medicine, neither of which at that time could be obtained at the mines for love or money. He recovered slowly, but living in San Francisco was so expensive that ere his health was sufficiently recruited to enable him to return to the gold fields, his funds were well-nigh exhausted. In order to recruit them, he went, in an evil hour, to the gaming saloons, and soon became an inveterate gambler. In the providence of God, he had been led some years before to become an abstainer from all intoxicating drinks, and, remaining firm to his pledge throughout the course of his downward career, was thus saved from the rapid destruction which too frequently overtook those who, to the exciting influences of gambling, added the maddening stimulus of alcohol. But the constant mental fever under which he labored was beginning to undermine a naturally robust constitution, and to unstring the nerves of a well-made, powerful frame. Sometimes, when fortune favored him, he became suddenly possessor of a large sum of money, which he squandered in reckless gaiety, often, however, following the dictates of an amiable, sympathetic disposition, he gave the most of it away to companions and acquaintances in distress. At other times he had not wherewith to pay for his dinner, in which case he took the first job that offered in order to procure a few dollars. Being strong and active, he frequently went down to the quays and offered his services as a porter to any of the gold hunters who were arriving in shoals from all parts of the world. It was thus, as we have seen, that he first met with Ned Sinton and his friends. All this, and a great deal more, did Ned worm out of his companion in the course of half an hour's stroll in the plaza. Now, said he, when Collins had finished, I'm going to make a proposal to you. I feel very much interested in all that you have told me. To be candid with you, I like your looks, and I like your voice. In fact, I like yourself. And, but what's your Christian name? Tom, replied the other. Very well, then I'll call you Tom in future, and you'll call me Ned. Now, Tom, you must come with me and Captain Bunting to the goldfields and try your fortune over again. Nay, don't shake your head. I know what you would say. You have no money to equip yourself, and you won't be indebted to strangers, and all that sort of stuff. But that won't do, my boy. I'm not a stranger. Don't I know all your history from first to last? Tom Collins sighed. Well, perhaps I don't know it all, but I know the most of it. And besides, I feel as if I had known you all my life. Ned interrupted the other in an earnest tone of voice. I feel your kindness very much. No one has spoken to me as you have done since I came to the diggings. But I cannot agree to your proposal today. Meet me at the Parker House tomorrow at this time, and I shall give you a final answer. But why not give it now? Because, because I want to, to get paid for a job I expect to get. Tom, said Ned, stopping and laying his hand on the shoulder of his companion, while he looked earnestly into his face. Let us begin our friendship with mutual candor. Do you not intend to make a few dollars and then try to increase them by another throw at the gaming table? The youth's brow flushed slightly as he answered, You're right. I had half an intention of trying my fortune for the last time. 
then, said Ned firmly and emphatically, you shall do nothing of the sort. Gambling for money is a mean, pitiful, contemptible thing. Don't frown, my dear fellow. I do not apply these terms to you. I apply them to the principle of gambling, a principle which you do not hold, as I know from your admission made to me not many minutes ago, that you have often striven against the temptation. Many men don't realize the full extent of the sinfulness of many of their practices, but although that renders them less culpable, it does not render them innocent, much less does it justify the evil practices. Gambling is all that I have styled it, and a great deal worse, and you must give it up. I insist on it. Moreover, Tom, I insist on your coming to dine with me at the Parker House. I shall introduce you to my friend Captain Bunting, whom you already know by sight. So come along. Well, I will, said Tom, smiling at his friend's energy, but still hanging back. But you must permit me to go to my lodgings first. I shall be back immediately. Very good. Remember, we dine in the course of an hour, so be punctual. While Tom Collins hurried away to his lodgings, Ned Sinton proceeded toward the shores of the bay in a remarkably happy frame of mind, intending to pass his leisure hour in watching the thousands of interesting and amusing incidents that were perpetually taking place on the crowded quays, where the passengers from the newly arrived brig were looking in bewildered anxiety after their luggage and calling for porters, where traffic by means of boats between the fleet and the land created constant confusion and hubbub where men of all nations bargained for the goods of all climes in every known tongue. While he gazed in silence at the exciting and almost bewildering scene, his attention was attracted to a group of men, among whose vociferating tones he thought he distinguished familiar voices. "'That's it. Here's your man, sir,' cried one, bursting from the crowd, with a huge portmanteau on his shoulder. "'Now then, where'll I steer to?' "'Right ahead to the best hotel,' answered a slim Yankee, whose black coat, patent leather boots, and white kids in such a place told plainly enough that a superfine dandy had mistaken his calling. "'Aye, aye, sir,' shouted Bill Jones as he brushed past Ned in his new capacity of porter. "'Why, you've cotched a live Yankee!' exclaimed a voice there was no mistaking as the owner slapped Bill on the shoulder. "'He'll make your fortin, after you only stick boy him.' He's just cut out for the diggings. If his mother was here to take care of him. Larry O'Neill gave a chuckle, slapped his pockets, and cut an elephantine caper as he turned from contemplating the retreating figure of his shipmate's employer and advanced toward the end of the quay. Now then, who's next? cried he, holding out both arms and looking excited as if he were ready to carry off any individual bodily in his arms to any place for mere love without reference to money. Don't all speak at once. Two dollars a mile for anything under a ton, and yourself on the top of it for four. Hello, Mr. Sinton, darling, is it yourself? Ugh, but this is the place entirely. Good and silver for the accent almost. Ah, you needn't grin. Look here. Larry plunged both hands into the pockets of his trousers and pulled them forth full of half-and-quarter dollars with a few shining little nuggets of gold interspersed among them. Ned opened his eyes in amazement and, taking his excited comrade apart from the crowd, asked how he had come by so much money. "'Come by it!' he exclaimed. "'You could come by twice the sum if you liked. "'Sure, didn't I find that they was charging two dollars?' Equal to eight shillings, I'm told, for carrying a boxer portmanter the length of me foot. 
so I turns porter all at once, and fie, I made six dollars in less nor an hour. But as I was coming back, I says to myself, says I, Larry, you'll be the better of a small glass or something, eh? So in I goes to a grog shop, and fie, I had to pay half a dollar for a thimble full of brandy. Bad luck to them, as would turn the stomach of a pig. I almost had a round with the landlord, but they told me it was the same everywhere. So I went and had another in the next shop, I says, just to try. And it was true. Then a Yankee spoils my knife. The great pig sticker the bob short swap with me for me junk a plum duff off the cape. It seems they've run out of such articles just at this time, and will give handfuls of gold for one. So says I, what'll you give? Three dollars, I guess, says one. Four, says another, he's cheating you. Four's bid, says I, mounting on a keg of backy and holding up the knife. Who says more? It's the rail stale, straight from Manchester or Connaught, I misremember which. Warranted to cut both ways, if you only turn the edge round and shove with a will. I be good in joke, but fie, they took me up in earnest and run up the price to twenty dollars. Far pounds as sure as me name's Larry, before I knowed where I was. I believe I could have got forty for it, but I hadn't the heart to ax more for it wasn't worth a brass button. You've made a most successful beginning, Larry. Have you any more knives like that one? Sorrow one, mars the pity. But that's only a small bit of me speculations. I found six old newspapers at the bottom of me chest, and would you believe it? I sold em every one for half a dollar the pace. And I don't rightly know how much clear gold I've got by standing all morning at the post office. Standing at the post office? What do you mean? Neither more nor less nor what I say. I suppose you know the mails come in yesterday morning. So says I to myself this morning. You've got no living soul in the old country that's likely to write to you. But you better go for all that and ax if there's litters. Maybe there is. Who knows? So away I went, and sure enough I found a row of men waiting for their letters. So I crushes hard. Ugh! But I thought they'd a hung me on the spot. And I found it was a row that first come, first served. Fair play and no favour. They was all standing one behind another in a line half a mile long if it was a foot. As patient as could be. Some readin' the newspapers and some drinking coffee and tea and grog that was sold by men as went up and down the loin the whole morning. So away I goes to the end of the loin and took me place, determined to stand it out, and in three minutes I heard a tale of a dozen men behind me. Fie, Larry, says I. It's the first time you ever commenced at the end of a thing in order to get to the beginning. Well, when I was getting pretty near the post-office window, oh, here's the chap behind me a-saying to the fellow behind him that he expected no letters but only took up his place in the line to sell it to them what did. And sure enough I found that lots of them were on the same errand. Just then up comes a miner in big boots and a wide awake. Och, says he, 
who'll sell me a place? And with that he offered a lot of pure good lumps. Guess it's too little, says the man next me. Ah, oh, you thieving blackguard, says I. Here, your honour, I'll sell you my place for half the lot. I can wait for me letter, more be token, I'm not sure there is one. I oh, see I was roiled at the Yankees' grade. So out I steps and in steps the miner and hands me the hole he'd offered at first. Take them, my man, says he. You're an honest fellow, and it's a treat to meet one here. Capital, cried Ned, laughing heartily. And you didn't try for a letter after all? Porter there, shouted a voice from the quay. That's me, your honour. Here you are, replied the Irishman, bounding away with a yell and shouldering a huge leathern trunk with which he vanished from the scene, leaving Ned to pursue the train of thought evoked by his account of his remarkable experiences. We deem it necessary here to assure the reader that the account given by Larry O'Neill of his doings was by no means exaggerated. The state of society and the eccentricities of traffic displayed in San Francisco and other Californian cities during the first years of the gold fever beggars all description. Writers on that place and period find difficulty in selecting words and inventing similes in order to convey anything like an adequate idea of their meaning. Even eyewitnesses found it almost impossible to believe the truth of what they heard and saw, and some have described the whole circle of life and manners there to have been more like to the wild, incongruous whirl of a pantomime than to the facts of real life. Even in the close and abrupt juxtaposition of the ludicrous and the horrible this held good. Ned Sinton had scarcely parted from his hilarious shipmate when he was attracted by shouts as if of men quarrelling in a gaming-house, and a few moments later the report of a pistol was heard, followed by a sharp cry of agony. Rushing into the house and forcing his way through the crowd, he reached the table in time to see the bloody corpse of a man carried out. This unfortunate had repeatedly lost large sums of money, and growing desperate staked his all on a final chance. He lost, and drawing his bowie knife in the heat of despair, rushed at the president of the table. A dozen arms arrested him, and rendered his intended assault abortive. Nevertheless, the president coolly drew a revolver from under the cloth and shot him dead. For a few minutes there was some attempt at disturbance, and some condemned, while others justified the act. But the body was removed, and soon the game went on as if nothing had occurred. Sickened with the sight, Ned hurried from the house and walked rapidly towards the shores of the bay, beyond the limits of the canvas town where he could breathe the free ocean air and wander on the sands in comparative solitude. The last straggling tent in that quarter was soon behind him, and he stopped by the side of an old upturned boat, against which he leaned, and gazed out upon the crowded bay with saddened feelings. As he stood in contemplation, he became aware of a sound, as if of heaving plethoric breathing under the boat. Starting up, he listened intently, and heard a faint groan. He now observed what had escaped his notice before, that the boat against which he leaned was a human habitation. A small hole near the keel admitted light, and possibly at times emitted smoke. Hastening round to the other side, he discovered a small aperture which served as a doorway. It was covered with a rag of coarse canvas, which he lifted and looked in. "'Who's there?' inquired a voice as sharply as extreme weakness would allow. "'Have a care. 
there's a revolver pointing at your head. If you come in without leave, I'll blow out your brains. I am a friend, said Ned, looking towards the further end of the boat, where, on a couch of straw, lay the emaciated form of a middle-aged man. Put down your pistol, friend. My presence here is simply owing to the fact that I heard you groan, and I would relieve your distress if it is in my power. You are the first that has said so since I lay down here, sighed the man, falling back heavily. Ned entered, and, advancing as well as he could in a stooping posture, sat down beside the sick man's pallet and felt his pulse. Then he looked anxiously in his face, on which the hand of death was visibly placed. My poor fellow, said Ned in a soothing tone, you are very ill, I fear. Have you no one to look after you? Ill? replied the sick man almost fiercely. I am dying. I have seen death too often and know it too well to be mistaken. His voice sank to a whisper as he added, It is not far off now. For a few seconds Ned could not make up his mind what to say. He felt unwilling to disturb the last moments of the man. At last he leaned forward and repeated from memory several of the most consoling passages of Scripture. Twice over, he said, Though thy sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as wool, and him that cometh unto me, Christ, I will in no wise cast out. The man appeared to listen, but made no reply. Suddenly he started up, and leaning on his elbow, looked with an awfully earnest stare into Ned's face. Young man, gold is good. Gold is good. Remember that. If you don't make it your God. After a pause, he continued, I made it my God. I toiled for it night and day. In heat and cold, wet and dry, I gave up everything for it. I spent all my time in search of it, and I got it. And what good can it do me now? I have spent night and day here for weeks threatening to shoot anyone who should come near my gold. Ha! he added sharply, observing that his visitor glanced around the apartment. You'll not find it here. No, look, look round, peer into every corner, tear up every plank of my boat, and you'll find nothing but rotten wood and dust and rusty nails. Be calm, my friend, said Ned, who now believed that the poor man's mind was wandering. I don't want your gold. I wish to comfort you if I can. Would you like me to do anything for you after? After I'm dead, said the man abruptly. No, nothing. I have no relations, no friends, no enemies even now. Yes, he added quickly, I have one friend. You are my friend. You have spoken kindly to me a beggar. You deserve the name of friend. Listen, I want you to be my heir. See here, I have had my will drawn up long ago with the place for the name left blank I had intended. But no matter. What is your name? Edward Sinton. Here, hand me that inkhorn in the pen. There, continued the man, pushing the paper towards him. I have made over to you the old boat and the ground it lies on, both are mine. The piece of ground is marked off by four posts. Take care of the... The man's voice sank to a mere whisper. Then it ceased suddenly. When Ned looked at him again, he started, 
for the cold hand of death had sealed his lips forever. A feeling of deep, intense pity filled the youth's heart as he gazed on the emaciated form of this friendless man, yet he experienced a sensation approaching almost to gladness when he remembered that the last words he had spoken to him were those of our blessed Saviour to the chief of sinners. Spreading the ragged piece of canvas that formed a quilt over the dead man's face, he rose and left the strange dwelling, the entrance to which he secured, and then hastened to give information of the death to the proper authorities. Ned was an hour too late for dinner when he arrived at the hotel, where he found Captain Bunting and his new friend awaiting him in some anxiety. Hastily informing them of the cause of his detention, he introduced them to each other, and forgot for a time the scene of death he had just witnessed, in talking over plans for the future, and in making arrangements for a trip to the diggings. End of chapter 7